This is Peel Myung, and you are listening to The Wrestle. Last summer, I took my children to Atlanta to show them where my grandmother grew up. I took them to the site of her family home and, less than a mile away, the childhood home of Martin Luther King Jr., now a National Historic Site. The first time that I visited the area was with my grandmother, not long before her death. When I noted at that time that she had lived less than a mile from Martin Luther King Jr. when they were growing up, she responded, Martin who? That same trip, she told me that when a date once took her to the theater, she made him walk her three miles home the long way rather than taking a direct route less than a mile through a black neighborhood, which she described with a racial slur. It was jarring for me to see the side of my grandmother, whom I considered one of the kindest people I knew. She left Atlanta when she was 21 years old and lived nearly her entire adult life in the American West. The area in which my grandmother lived longest during my lifetime was not very racially diverse, so I had little occasion to observe her racial prejudice. And the casual shamelessness with which she expressed it, as if it were a sentiment we all shared, shocked me. But it probably shouldn't have. On both sides of my family tree, I have ancestors, the only surviving records of whom are wills providing for the disposition of slaves. The book of Revelation in the Bible talks about the dead being judged out of those things which were written in books. It seems tragic to me that the only things written about some of my dead forebears in the books available to their posterity are evidences of their treating other human beings as property. Unfortunately, that was not uncommon for their time. The man who penned the Declaration of Independence, which says, All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with the unalienable right of liberty, personally owned more than 600 slaves. When national sentiment favored ending that hypocrisy, the corner of the country in which my grandmother would later be born fought to preserve it. Her great-grandfather, who died just five months before her birth, had been a Confederate soldier. And though the Civil War put an end to slavery... Ideas about black inferiority that had allowed slavery to exist persisted. Rather than challenging those ideas, the church in which my grandmother was raised and to which she was devoted her whole life, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known then as the Mormon Church, reinforced them. Joseph Smith, whom the church regards as its first president and modern prophet, organized in 1830 a church that he claimed was a restoration of the ancient Church of Christ. At the time, many American churches taught that black slavery was God's will. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says that the Lord set a mark upon Cain, one of Adam and Eve's sons, after Cain murdered his brother, Abel, and that Noah, whose family were the only survivors of a global flood, cursed his own grandson, Canaan, to be a servant because of an offense committed by Canaan's father, Noah's son, Ham. To justify slavery, many American churches in Smith's day claimed that the mark God set on Cain was black skin, that the mark had survived the flood because of Ham's wife, Canaan's mother, who was a descendant of Cain, and that people with black skin, the mark of Cain, had inherited the curse of Canaan, slavery. This was a tortured reading of the Bible, which nowhere states that the mark of Cain was black skin or that Canaan's mother was a descendant of Cain. In 1830, Smith produced what he claimed was an inspired translation of lost and corrupted portions of the Bible that appeared to fill this gap. His translation stated explicitly that the seed of Cain were black, 
and that blackness came upon all the children of Canaan. In 1836, Smith published a letter in which he declared the curse of Canaan, the decree of Jehovah, and a singular prophecy of which black slavery was the fulfillment. The curse, said Smith, was not yet taken off the sons of Canaan. Around the same time, to placate local slaveholders when the church established a presence in Missouri, Smith endorsed a church declaration, now canonized as scripture, which reads, We do not believe it right to interfere with bondservants, neither preach the gospel to nor baptize them, contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least, to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situations in this life. For someone who claimed to be a modern Moses, Smith's rhetoric sounded decidedly unlike the original Moses' demand, Let my people go. Brigham Young, who emerged from a succession contest following Smith's death as the leader of the majority of Smith's followers, relocated the church to Utah where, in 1852, he persuaded the Utah Territorial Legislature to legalize slavery, declaring himself a firm believer in slavery, and insisting that inasmuch as we believe in the Bible, we must believe in slavery. Ten years later, the United States Congress outlawed slavery in all U.S. territories, including the Utah Territory. But although slavery ended, racism persisted. While lobbying for the legalization of slavery in 1852, Brigham Young declared, Negroes are the children of old Cain, that because Cain killed Abel, the Lord told Cain that he should not receive the blessings of the priesthood nor his seed until the last of the posterity of Abel had received the priesthood, that Young himself was not authorized to remove that curse, and that consequently, a man who has the African blood in him cannot hold one jot nor tittle of priesthood. Under the direction of Brigham Young, the church instituted what is commonly referred to as the priesthood ban, refusing priesthood ordination and sacred temple rites to those thought to have black African ancestry. Though Joseph Smith produced what he claimed was an inspired translation of ancient text canonized as scripture by the church still today, which says that descendants of Ham's wife preserved the curse after the flood and were of that lineage that could not have the right of priesthood, there is no indication that he personally believed race to disqualify anyone from full participation in the church, and people of black African ancestry were ordained to the priesthood and participated in temple ceremonies during Smith's lifetime. It was only after his death that the church instituted the priesthood ban, which it did not lift until 1978, at that time declaring the long-promised day had come. Though the church would not say so explicitly, the long-promised day it referenced was ostensibly the day that Brigham Young had prophesied when, as he put it, the curse should be wiped off, and the posterity of Cain will have the privilege of all we have the privilege of. The implication was that God had finally lifted the curse he himself imposed on the seed of Cain thousands of years earlier. This framing ignored the fact that there was no priesthood ban when Joseph Smith was president of the church, and attributed the priesthood ban to God's will, rather than human error. There was no apology for 130 years of institutional racism. On February 28, 2012, the Washington Post ran an article by journalist Jason Horowitz titled, The Genesis of a Church's Stand on Race, in which Horowitz explored the origins of the church's priesthood ban. 
Though the priesthood ban may not have been out of lockstep with racism in many American churches at the time it was instituted, by the time it was finally rescinded in 1978, it had become a source of great embarrassment to many members of the church who had prayed for an end to awkward conversations about racism in the church with neighbors, friends, and co-workers. And it largely was. Until it became clear in 2012 that Mitt Romney had a real shot at becoming the first member of the church to win a major party nomination for President of the United States. Understandably, his candidacy invited public curiosity in and scrutiny of his faith. The American public has long been wary of the church because of its unconventional teachings and history. Members of the church believe that the church is led by a prophet who receives revelation from God, like Moses. Naturally, as they did with John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic president of the United States, voters wondered whether the candidate would follow the law if there was a conflict between the law and a director from the leader of the candidate's faith. The president of the church, in Romney's case, or the Pope, in Kennedy's. It was not an unreasonable question, given that Romney's own great-grandfather left the country to practice polygamy in Mexico when it was outlawed in the United States, demonstrating greater loyalty to faith than country. And so, given that Romney was a lifelong member of a church for whom he had served as a missionary and lay leader before the priesthood ban was rescinded, it was not unfair for Horowitz to ask, essentially, whether the man who wanted to be president was a racist. To help answer that question, Horowitz asked Randy Bott, a religion professor at church-owned Brigham Young University, to explain why the church had instituted the priesthood ban in the first place. According to Horowitz, Bott responded by referencing church teaching about the curses of Cain and Canaan, saying, According to Mormon scriptures, the descendants of Cain, who killed his brother Abel, were black. One of Canaan's descendants married Ham, whose descendants were themselves cursed and, in the view of many Mormons, barred from the priesthood by his father Noah. Horowitz noted that, as recently as 1949, church leaders suggested that the ban on blacks resulted from the consequences of the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence. As a result, many Mormons believed that blacks were less valiant in the pre-earth life or fence-sitters in the war between God and Satan. This was true. In 1949, the church president George Albert Smith and his counselors issued a public statement declaring that it was not mere policy, but the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization that Negroes are not entitled to the priesthood until the curse is removed from the seed of Cain. And insisting that this was no injustice because of another doctrine of the church, namely, that the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence has some determining effect upon the conditions of mortality. In other words, the president of the church was suggesting that people with black skin had brought a curse upon themselves by their conduct in heaven before they were born. The church doubled down on this theory in 1969, when a statement issued on behalf of another church president, David O. McKay, and his counselors declared, Discrimination by the church toward the Negro is not something which originated with man, but goes back to the beginning with God, back to man's pre-existent state. Horowitz further quoted Bott as saying, God has always been discriminatory when it comes to whom he grants the authority of the priesthood, and the Lord gives to people all that he seeth fit. This also was a familiar refrain from church apologists, who sought to justify the priesthood ban by pointing to the fact that, in the Bible, 
certain priesthood privileges were reserved exclusively for descendants of Levi. Horowitz reported that compared blacks with a young child prematurely asking for the keys to her father's car and explained that, similarly, until 1978, the Lord determined that blacks were not yet ready for the priesthood. What is discrimination? Bott asked. I think that is keeping something from somebody that would be a benefit for them, right? But what if it wouldn't have been a benefit to them? Bott said that the denial of the priesthood to blacks on earth, although not in the afterlife, protected them from the lowest rungs of hell reserved for people who abused their priesthood powers. You couldn't fall off the top of the ladder because you weren't on the top of the ladder. So, in reality, blacks not having the priesthood was the greatest blessing God could give them. This unfortunate sentiment was also well worn in the church, going back at least to Brigham Young, who said, When a master has a Negro and uses him well, he is much better off than if he was free. And, that because they are not capable of ruling themselves, the seed of Cain, as he described people of black African ancestry, should be treated as children. The church was thoroughly embarrassed by Horowitz's report. The very next day, the church issued a press release stating that the church unequivocally condemns racism, including past racism by individuals inside the church, and that it is not known why, how, or when the priesthood ban began, but that it had ended more than three decades prior. The church characterized previous explanations with respect to the priesthood ban as personal statements made in the absence of direct revelation that do not represent church doctrine and declared that no man who makes disparaging remarks concerning those of another race can consider himself to be in harmony with the teachings of the church. I was stunned. On the one hand, I was glad to see the church publicly declare that the justifications for the priesthood ban that Bott had shared with Horowitz were both racist and false. It was the first such unambiguous disavowal in my memory. But Bott was not wrong that the justifications he had shared with Horowitz had long been taught in the church, and the church's insistence that they were merely personal statements, not in harmony with the teachings of the church, was wildly disingenuous. The next year, in 2013, the church posted an essay on its website in which it attempted to explain the historical context of the priesthood ban and distance itself from the justifications for it described in the Washington Post, saying, At the time the church was established, racial distinctions and prejudice were not just common, but customary among white Americans. In 1852, President Brigham Young publicly announced that men of black African descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood. Subsequent church presidents restricted blacks from being married in the temple. Over time, church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions. None of these explanations is accepted today as the official doctrine of the church. Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present, in any form. Unlike the 2012 press release, the 2013 essay did not claim that the origins of the priesthood ban were unknown. In fact, it seemed to infer that the priesthood ban was the product of racism among early members of the church, not a divine curse. However, 
The essay was published on an obscure page of the church's website with little fanfare, and unlike the official church statements on the priesthood ban in the past that were explicitly attributed to specific church presidents, the essay was attributed to anonymous scholars. As a result, the idea that the priesthood ban was God's will, rather than human error, persists in the church. Just this month, ten years after the Washington Post article, Another BYU professor, who also happens to be a church authority, with responsibility for church youth programs worldwide, embarrassed the church by saying of the priesthood ban, instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829? After public outcry, the speaker issued an apology, which was refreshing given that the church has long insisted that it neither seeks nor gives apologies. But the apology actually doubled down on the offense, rather than correcting it. He said, The illustration I attempted to use about the timing of the revelation on the priesthood for black members was wrong. The issue with his comment was not an illustration. The issue with his comment, and his subsequent apology, was that both attributed the priesthood ban to God's timing, rather than human error. This is one reason that racism persists in the church today, more than 40 years after the priesthood ban was lifted. Disavowals by the church website and newsroom notwithstanding, it is hard to see how, after church presidents made official statements of doctrine for more than a century, attributing the priesthood ban to God's will and offering racist justifications for it, the church can move past that racist messaging without an official statement from the church president unambiguously acknowledging that the priesthood ban was human error and not God's will. The writer Joanna Brooks observed, The concept of morality that Christian churches center around is an individualized morality that is premised on being individually honest in transactions with others, rather than a sense of morality as a refusal to benefit from advantage-taking of others. This makes us believe we stand outside of history, innocent of history, and that everything we wake up with in the morning is ours by right and by the grace of God, not by theft or by exploitation. It prevents the growth of a more substantial sense of morality. Churches offer individual believers rights that say, feel good about yourself entirely, all is well, just follow this set of directions A through G, and we are going to reassure you all the time. Part of the work of unlearning white supremacy is the willingness to be surprised by our encounter with people unlike ourselves, or people with a different experience, and to be humbled, and to be wrong, and to be sorry. Where, in predominantly white Christianity, are we used to being wrong? Are we used to being genuinely sorry? Are we used to being surprised and embarrassed, and maybe even feeling guilty? It's not for me to condemn anyone. I am not without sin, and I won't be casting any stones. Certainly not at my grandmother, who was never anything but good to me, and whom I miss and love dearly. I wonder what things I may be doing myself today that will not age well in the eyes of my posterity. I think it is fair and important to be unflinching and clear-eyed in evaluating systems. My grandmother and others, especially black Americans, were failed by systems in which they lived. The system of slavery, 
segregation, and racial discrimination in the United States as a whole, and in the southern states in particular, and the system of transactional morality and racial discrimination in the church. The church absolutely offers its members' rights that say, follow this set of directions and we are going to reassure you. The church did not challenge my grandmother or her contemporaries to examine the racial prejudice. Instead, it provided religious cover for it, condoned systemic advantage-taking of others, and reassured them, irrespective of racial prejudice, so long as they adhered to a prescribed list of beliefs and practices. I cannot say whether my grandmother or her contemporaries ever felt humbled, sorry, embarrassed, or guilty for racism in the church, but I do. By the time I was old enough to understand it, the priesthood ban had been lifted. But like Jason Horowitz, I had questions about why the ban was instituted in the first place. To answer my questions, and to arm me with answers for others, well-meaning Sunday school teachers gave me justifications like those given by Randy Bott to Horowitz. As I got older, and learned more, I was able to see racism in the church for what it was. And it was by no means limited to racism toward people of black African descent. More on that another day. So, I was glad to see the church disavow false doctrine on which the Washington Post had shown a light. Unfortunately, by the time that happened, my grandmother was no longer with us. I like to think that she now knows what the church failed to help her see while she was here. And I hope the church will do better by her great-grandchildren on this score than it did by her, and put an end to the God's timing narrative. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to The Wrestle.